0: Hello, welcome to this Reality Church London conversation. My name is Luke Hamilton and today we're sharing a conversation we held at the start of February where we were joined by a very special guest, Will Vanderhart, alongside members of the Reality Church London community for a time of Q&A. This conversation is all around pursuing mental health, and as always, there's some really great wisdom shared. So grab your notebooks as we embark on this conversation together around how everyone in the church can be pursuing mental health. Welcome Will and everyone else at Reality Church London joining us for this evening. We are so glad that you are here for this conversation all about how we can be pursuing mental health. We believe this conversation is an important one, and by coming along tonight, you're joining this ongoing dialogue we're having as a church. So as you would have seen when you registered for the event this evening, we're excited to have Will Vanderhart with us. He's going to be sharing some wisdom and also a little bit of his story with us this evening. Will is co-director of the Mind and Soul Foundation, which is an emotional health think tank that's been exploring the relationship between Christianity and mental health since 2005. Will is the associate vicar of St. Dionys Parsons Green, and I'm so glad he's here with us. I've known Will for four plus years. We were on staff together at a previous church, and I've been fortunate enough to hear Will's teaching many times. It really has had such an impact on me. So to get us started and to root us in this time together this evening, Pastor Bajan is going to share a little around why this conversation is important.
1: Let me just set the context for this conversation in this way. A couple of weeks ago, you may have seen on our Reality Church London Medium publication that Luke actually released an article about mental health and sharing some of his own story. If you haven't read it yet, I'd encourage you to find some time over the next week to go to our site and check it out. But if you did read the article, you know that part of what he did as he shared his own story was reflect on Philippians chapter four. And it was a very helpful summary of some teaching there. And I've been thinking about that chapter in preparation for tonight's conversation. And one of the things that stood out to me that I never really noticed before is that Paul the Apostle tells the church in all of their anxieties and struggles to be praying and bringing it to God. And then as they do that, God's peace will guard their hearts and their minds, that the peace of God is there for both our, you might say, heart, but also our mental health. The way we're thinking and feeling about life and the situations around us and that really was important to me, because as I've grown up in the church, I've noticed in my own experience and in some of the churches that I've been a part of, that sometimes there's a stigma around mental health, being able to talk about it and to share honestly and openly. I don't know where that stigma comes from, but it certainly doesn't come from the Bible. And it's my hope that as a church, that stigma won't characterize RCL. But that we would be a community in which we can be honest and sharing in conversations about our mental health because god cares about it and it's an important part of our humanity and so for that reason i couldn't be more excited that will is here to lead us over the past few weeks i've been so encouraged by his teaching and writings on the subject and we're in really good hands tonight i'm really excited that he's been willing to come Let me just give you a quick overview of how the night's gonna go. In just a minute, I'm gonna turn it over to Will and he's gonna lead us in a teaching. After that, he and I will have a little opportunity for conversation and then what probably will be the most exciting portion of the evening, we'll be hearing from you and your questions. And so throughout Will's talk, if there are any questions that come to mind that you would like to ask, please submit them in the chat box. You can do that directly to Luke All those questions will be anonymous, except for Luke, he'll know, but no one else will. And so this is an opportunity for you to submit any questions that you have based on Will's talk or broadly related to mental health. And we already have some questions that have come in. We'll do our best to get to as many as we can so that we all have a chance to uh, interact with Will about this really important subject. But with no further ado, let's turn it over to Will. Will, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we're really grateful for your leadership in this conversation.
2: Thank you so much. Hi to everyone there at Reality Church. It's amazing to have this opportunity to connect with you all. And um, the first thing I want to say is just thank you for being on this call. It actually takes quite a lot of courage just to step out and join a call around mental health. And if you join the call tonight, you might be someone who's struggling with mental health. You might have an interest in mental health generally, or you might just be a member of the congregation who just thinks this is an interesting conversation. The fact that you're willing to join the call and be confused about who you might be to your pastor and leaders, I think is a really great sign about the health of your own church. Because the reality is that mental health is all of our concerns. Um, sometimes, you know, in the past, the church has hived off people who have a mental health problem and said, oh, well, that you know, this is an issue for this subgroup of people. But mental ill health and mental well-being are effectively two ends of the same continuum. So I want to say to you all, you know, tonight that this is all of our journeys and whether you're someone here who has a diagnosed mental health problem or whether you're someone who regards yourself as relatively emotionally healthy, we are all in the same family. If you've got a brain in your head, you can guarantee that you are on the mental health journey. I, I want to just take a few minutes. We just got sort of 15 minutes before I want to open this up with Pastor Bougin to a, a conversation and it's an opportunity to answer some questions. But just to talk a little bit about my own journey, because I think that might be a helpful introduction, and then to just bring through a few pointers around emotional health and well-being at this particular time. Um, in 2005, I was uh, walking my wife to Paddington train station, uh, we lived just opposite Edgware Road Tube, and uh, it was a sunny morning, and I, I walked her to uh, the station at Paddington. She was going off to a conference in Oxford, and on my way back, there'd been some major incident at the troop, Tube station. That I was just opposite our house. And uh, I popped into my office, felt a bit uneasy, felt a prompting of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I got out and put on my dog collar. I don't wear one of those very often. It takes quite a lot to get me into one. So I put my dog collar on, which is a kind of a bit of a superhero outfit, really, in in the contemporary world. So I came back out, and there was a cordon set up. I came under the cordon, and I remember this man who was running towards me. He said, There's bodies, there's bodies. And he was covered in soot. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, what, what am I walking into right here? And actually, I was walking into the London bombings of uh, the 7th of July, um, 2005. And uh, I, I got involved in the recovery, uh, particularly in hosting the emergency services response and opened a small hall, which became the Operation Centre for the Police and Emergency Services. All this time, I'm buzzing around as someone who thinks that they have emotionally positive emotional health, and certainly had never experienced any mental health uh, condition in the past. But you know, within three months of that experience, I was brought to my knees with complex post-traumatic stress disorder and an anxiety breakdown. I couldn't leave my own house. I was having nine or 10 pan- t- panic attacks a night. I was needing to take antidepressant medication. I'd started seeing a therapist, and I was beginning what would be a nine-month journey out of really acute emotional distress. And um, so if you're one of those people who can relate to that story, it's great to be on the call with you tonight. If you're not, then I just want to encourage you, don't be afraid. That probably won't happen to you. But it's important that you hear that story, just to know that if you think that mental health just afflicts a certain sort of subgroup of society, uh, I want you to think again, mental health afflicts everybody. It was quite interesting for me at the time because the church wasn't really that interested in mental health. In fact, it had two speeds as far as mental health is concerned. They were either denial or spiritualization. And so I could, I could describe that to you in a, a simple way, because the two senior pastors who were looking after me uh, epitomized those two positions. So one pastor, he said, Will, you're just tired. So he wanted to diminish my mental health breakdown and said, if I just went to sleep, which I was actually struggling to do anyway, but if I went to sleep for a few days, I'd probably wake up and I'd be fine again. Uh, The other pastor thought the devil had got into me. And if you're struggling with an anxiety disorder, you'll know how frightening that might be. And so he started trying to exorcise a demon or some sort of spirit of the enemy from my life. Because I've had no involvement with occult things. You know, I submitted my life to Jesus. I'm a sold-out Christian leader. I had charismatic experience of the Holy Spirit. I love the scriptures. And here I am struggling in this way and beginning to wonder whether or not it's supernatural Interestingly to me at the time, it was a non-Christian GP from my really busy local health center, who was the person who was my Samaritan man during that period. He literally got down off his donkey, put me on it, and paid for my care. Well, he didn't pay for it himself, but he phoned me like four or five times, you know, out of hours just to check that I was doing okay, and explained to me what was going on with my body and with my mind. Now, I, I, I went through that difficult period and came out the other side asking the question, what's it look like for Christians who are suffering from mental and emotional health issues, and how can we do better as a church? And, and you know, I don't want to sort of go on and on about my own story, but I'd say that that work, that mission field is where I've been inhabiting for the last 16 years, and alongside two great psychiatrists and psychologists, we're trying to do that work of saying, actually, what does God think about our mental and emotional health? And so tonight, I hope that you have the opportunity to ask a few of those questions. If you're still not convinced it's your deal, I'd say, imagine you're driving a car. Like, we have all got different levels of petrol in the tank, unless you're driving an electric car, which is you've got a different level of charge. But, you know, it's either E or F. You're either empty or full. And we all find ourselves somewhere on that continuum between mental well-being and mental distress, But mental health or mental ill health doesn't epitomize what it means to be mentally healthy. The World Health Organization says that mental health is defined as a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. So there's actually four things that denote what it means to be mentally healthy, There's the chance to realise your own potential. There's the chance to cope with normal stresses. There's the chance to work productively. And there's the chance to contribute to, to a community. And I think it's so important we keep thinking about those four markers for mental health. Because if we keep thinking about, if you like, the negative aspects of mental health, what it feels like to be depressed, what it feels like to be anxious, what it feels like to have psychotic experience or serious and enduring experience we lose sight of the fact that mental well-being is more than the absence of symptoms. And this is where I believe John 10.10 is so important for us as Christians, because actually life and life on its fullness is not just life with the absence of mental ill health. It's about the presence of mental well-being. As Pastor Bishan's already pointed out, Paul's called us to understand a God who doesn't just love our hearts, but also loves our minds. And church is an environment where we can thrive with our mental health and well-being, and where we can call the world to thrive. If we want to see the world sold out for Jesus, a big part of that world is demonstrating a community of genuine love and care in which everyone is welcome, regardless of their mental ill health or mental well-being. Actually, that place of openness and welcome is a key aspect of what it is to demonstrate the presence of the kingdom of God in a very stigmatizing and difficult world. How about your health and well-being tonight, particularly in this COVID season? You might notice that the World Health Organization said that one of the markers for positive mental health is the ability to cope with normal stresses. I want to say to you tonight that we are not in a season of normal stress. So if you're one of the people in Reality Church who struggled with their mental health in the past, you might find a return of some of your historic symptoms at the moment. Because the level of stress which you're having to deal with is greater than is what's normative. I've described the season as being plugged into an adrenal drip. As someone who suffers from an anxiety disorder still, uh, I, I'm on, working on the basis of an understanding that an anxiety cycle works on a 15-minute continuum, that you experience a threat You respond to threat with a fight or flight response, and then your sympathetic system begins to calm down with the activation of your parasympathic nervous system. And then you feel good again. The trouble about COVID is it's been going on for a year. And so rather than dealing with one threat like a bear in the woods, we're dealing with this unknown sense of disease as a continuing factor of our lives today. So it's likely that you're going to feel uh, more threatened than normal. There's a a model called the traditional phases of collective trauma response. Obviously I worked out of my trauma in the London bombings. Then I worked at the Grenfell site for a couple of years with the healing minds team in response to that trauma. And globally traumas like the tsunami of 2004 and other events uh, around the world have five phases, an impact phase, a heroic phase, a disillusionment phase, a rebuilding phase, and a wiser living phase. Now, what, what we would have anticipated happening was that from February, we we're in the impact phase. In the impact phase, you tend to deny your reality and you know, you're in shock. Then you move into beating your reality by clapping for the NHS and exercising with Joe Wicks and baking sourdough bread and being more positive than you've ever been before in your life. But that heroic phase gives way to then the disillusionment phase when you begin to feel angry and exhausted and hopeless. But that phase is then supposed to give way to the rebuilding phase, where you see things more positively before you live more wisely. Sadly, 2020 into 2021 has actually not been a five-fold model. It's been a threefold model. We've had impact, heroic disillusionment, impact heroic disillusionment, and then impact heroic and disillusionment, each time the heroic phase becoming less strong. And so what we've actually done is have a triplet of grief and trauma. And so our mental and emotional health at the moment is triply suppressed. And therefore, we have to think very carefully about how we can support our own mental health and each other's mental health at a time like this. And I'm sure there's some brilliant questions uh, about that in the chat, which I'm going to respond to in a couple of moments. I want you, though, to think just before we move on to this idea of the difference between productive stress and destructive strain that actually God hasn't created us people who are meant to sit idly by and just, you know, float through life. Jesus said in this life, you will have trouble. Uh, and so we're designed to be like a spring under load. If, and if you did physics at GCC, you remember Hooke's law, which defined a spring's ability to return to its own shape after existing under load. So productive stress is good for us. And it means that we've got a normal appetite and sleep. We feel energised. We're optimistic and productive. We relate well to others. We have healthy boundaries and normal levels of anger. Destructive strain is when productive stress goes wrong and we're under heavy load for too long. And that heavy load changes the shape of the spring. So when it's unloaded, it doesn't return to its original shape. And that can mean changes in appetite or sleep, feeling lethargic or agitated, pessimism or lack of productivity, feeling insulated or hostile, having poor boundaries and being easily angered. Now, I don't want again to become afraid. Many of us will be ex- exhibiting some of the aspects of destructive strain right now. But in identifying a red light on our dashboard, the key thing is that we drive into that garage and begin to get some work under the bonnet to make sure that actually we are setting the standard of recovery and beginning to uh, regrow healthy shoots and roots. So again, I hope that we're going to address some of those issues tonight. I guess one of the key things to leave you with before I go back to Pastor Vijan is this idea of actually recognizing that just as your body need care, needs care and maintenance in order to do well, your mind needs care and maintenance too, that not everything that you experience is, is spiritual with a capital S and not everything that you experience is benign and physical, but actually that the mind is the operating system for the body and we have to debug it sometimes and take care of it. And some of our minds will be unruly, but the reality is that God can use us in every and every circumstance, despite, if not because of the chaos of our own minds. I've been in too many churches where they say, when you're through your depression, then you can help. Or when you're over anxiety, then you can do something. And I tend to remind them that Charles Spurgeon was depressed for more than 20 years and preached some of the best sermons ever preached in the UK. That Mother Teresa was depressed for most of her ministry. She wrote extensively to her spiritual director about her depression, and yet she served the poor like no one else has served the poor in the last 100 years. That Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, struggled with OCD and complex anxiety. That there are innumerable others, (laughs) including Florence Nightingale, who had a serious and enduring mental health condition in bipolar disorder, and yet loved and ministered to the wounded and the hurting and the broken. That actually, the church is built on the backs of those who've struggled with their mental and emotional health. And however you're doing, you are not so broken that God cannot build the kingdom of God on your own back. And He's calling you right now, as a whole church, to participate with Reality Church London to build that kingdom. They are all precious, they are all valuable, and that you don't need to be fixed to be useful. So I want to encourage you tonight and say, go for it. This is such an important conversation. And this is just a little starter for what I hope will be a great time of answering your specific questions. So do try and be specific. You don't need to be personal, but you do need to be specific. And then we'll hopefully be able to help with some targeted responses in the next few minutes. Pastor Bijan, over to you. Well, Will,
1: thank you so much. And you're seeing some clap hands. I think I speak on behalf of the community when I say thank you so much for getting us started with those incredibly helpful and biblical thoughts. As you guys just heard Will say, please, if you have questions that you want to raise about mental health or anything you've heard so far tonight, go to the chat box, type those questions in. They'll be anonymous, they'll go directly to Luke, and we'll have a chance to get to as many questions as we can. But Will, as those questions are coming in, I wanted to ask you, as I hear you give that overview, I find my heart resonating. I feel a lot of excitement and so much resonance with what is in scripture. And so I have to ask, in your experience, and as you've done research and thinking about it, why do you think that, I'm sure there are exceptions, but generally, the church has been such a hard place to talk about mental health. And things related to our emotional health. Why might that be the case?
2: Yeah, it is a remarkable thing, Pastor Bijan. And I, I would say it, it's a relatively new phenomenon. And so, in the UK, particularly uh, up until the late 1900s, the the safe place to go if you were struggling with your mental ill health was to the monasteries. And actually, uh, you know, that actually we have a tradition here of care uh, historically the monasteries and uh, the nunneries, uh, the church was the center of emotional health care in the community, particularly for people with really acute mental health problems, that the church was a place of rescue and sanctuary for those people. Um, The churches, even through the Methodist period, was pretty good. I've read some really interesting letters by the Wesley brothers, particularly Charles Wesley's wife, who had a great care of people who were depressed. And he was very keen to keep them out of the asylums. The asylums, interestingly, originally were run by the church. So you've got like St Bethlehem is, uh, was, became bedlam. So what was good became bad in terms of its care. It's good again now. Uh, the Royal Bethlehem Hospital in East London it is a secure psychiatric unit, but it went through a bad phase where people paid to come and see people who were mentally distressed. So we've got a checkered history, but generally a good history, in terms of Methodism did amazing things for mental health, and there's always been a narrative whereby people have benefited from the ministry of the church and the presence of Jesus as far as their mental health is concerned. Even if we go further back, we see that frankincense was used in the treatment of depression. Uh, (laughs) There were were treatments, I find it fascinating that, that one of the wise men, one of the magi, brought frankincense to Jesus. Maybe it was a sign that Jesus would have a ministry of healing to people with not just physical ailments and spiritual ailments, but also mental ailments. Unfortunately, at the turn of the 20th century, we see the arrival of the psychoanalysts, so particularly Sigmund Freud, who you'll be well aware of, but also Carl Gustav Jung. And when um, when the Freudian and Jungian analysts came to the table, they began to use language which the Christian Church felt really nervous about, but particularly the idea that sin was not an existential experience. It wasn't an objective experience, but it was a subjective, internalised experience. And that actually it was a manifestation of our inner narrative rather than being something that was objectively true in the sight of God. So Jung, for example, incorporates the idea of sin in the kind of container of the superego. Now, the church becomes very, very nervous about that and begins to pull away from discourse around mental health. And a great example is in guilt. So there was a form of false guilt which was known to the Methodists called scrupulosity. This is the idea that we have a conscience which is overly seared and feel guilty about things we shouldn't feel guilty about. Of course, the psychoanalysts started saying, well, that's obviously a psychological problem. But if you could could psychologize away guilt, you could also psychologize away sin And therefore, the church has got a problem. And so what happened was the church took a single speed view of of guilt. If you feel guilty, you are guilty. They pulled away from the psychological space altogether and actually began to stigmatize psychological uh, terminology for a much more simple binary physical or spiritual narrative. And so the last, certainly, you know, 70 years of the church have been relatively hostile to the psychological discourse in the West. The result of that has been that our generations have suffered, but there is a, there is a change, a seed change these last 20 years, and particularly these last 10 years. So I'm really hopeful that actually the tide is turning. But there, is, there are really interesting historical markers as to why this change from hostility, well, from welcome to hostility to welcome. Uh, so that's a little outline.
1: Well, we're really glad that that is changing and we as a church want to be part of that conversation. And I think as that conversation unfolds, one thing I wanted to ask you to unpack a little further is a couple of times tonight you use the phrase emotional health and other times we use the phrase mental health. I'm wondering if you could just define and maybe distinguish those two concepts, emotional health and mental health.
2: Absolutely. So um, there is something called the uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM, which many people on this call will, will know about if they've got a, a, a diagnosed mental health problem. It's, a, it's, it's like the Haynes Manual for mental health. It's this giant catalogue of mental health conditions. And you know, di- mental health diagnosis is a complicated thing because it's both the evidence of active symptoms and flat symptoms. So it, it, it's trying to understand you know, what actively makes us feel unwell, but also what's, ma- what's missing from our lives when we are unwell. That categorizes a number of mental health conditions. And so they're loosely um, grouped into two main settings. The first one is the neurotic disorders on the left, and the other one is the seriously enduring disorders on the right. Most people who struggle with a mental health problem statistically will have a, a neurotic disorder so the most common is mixed anxiety and depression. That's about a 6.1% statistic in the UK at the moment. So quite a high prevalence. L- less common are things like schizophrenia, which is more like a, you know, a one in 10,000 statistic in the UK, although there are, there's a bit of bandwidth on that uh, in terms of stickability. But certainly there, is, you know, there are a far less prevalent disorders, which are what's called serious and enduring. So when we talk about mental health, we're largely talking about this big grouping of defined uh, illnesses, like we might do, go to an encyclopedia of ill health and find other, if you like, diseases that could be labelled. Emotional health is like the E of the F on the uh, spectrum of my petrol tank. If the F represents the mental health diagnoses, the, the sorry, if the the E represents the mental diagnosis, the F represents emotional health. Now, our emotional health is at the sort of softer end of mental health. That said, I've got to be careful here because you could have a mental health diagnosis and be very emotionally healthy. So these are are both side-by-side and overlapping terms. I would say until someone has really understood their mental ill health they can't get emotionally healthy. So in the first instance, it, emotional health and, so is on the continuum to mental health. If you get a mental diagnosis, emotional health sits on the top almost. So you could have a seriously enduring disorder like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder and be extremely emotionally healthy. Emotional health is a bit like physical health. If you go to the gym and work out and eat well, it doesn't stop you getting the flu but it can help you recover from the flu more quickly. And so you can be physically healthy and yet still get physically ill. You can be emotionally healthy and still get mentally ill, but actually you tend to do better if you've got better emotional health, if you get mentally unwell. And if you are mentally unwell, you can do really well if you invest a lot in your emotional health. I hope that that sounds complicated, but it's more straightforward than I'm making it sound. Well,
1: we appreciate that. And I think there'll probably be some other opportunities to reflect on some of those differences, and resources related to both. But friends, at this time, we have a lot of great questions from you. And so we want to turn it over there and leave the bulk of our time for your questions. So Luke is going to facilitate this time as the questions have been
0: coming in. Luke, over to you. Great. Thank you, everyone. It really is encouraging seeing all these questions come in. We're going to try and get for as many as we can in our time. The first question is around uh, mental health recovery. So it's about the relationship between praying for healing versus professional help and medication. So I think the question is around what's the relationship around the uh, professional help, medication versus simply praying,
2: praying for healing. Great. Thanks, Lou. Yeah. So I'll get rid of the versus straight away. There is no versus. So um, if you got diagnosed with cancer, you wouldn't ask that question. You wouldn't say, do I receive the treatment from the Marsden Hospital, the best treatment in the world, or do I pray? What you say is I receive the best treatment in the world and I pray. And I would say to anyone here who's listening, just get rid of the verses. What, What we tend to, what we always need when we've got a mental health problem is we need professional help and we need to pray. And I'd say, you know, we need to get away from the idea that it's either or. Actually, many of the mental health problems that we have are rooted in our actual biological body. Uh, So, you know, when we think about mental health and mental distress particularly, it's very rarely just a set of emotions disconnected. Remember, we're embodied people. Jesus was God, became flesh, and the embodied bit is significant. We are embodied people, and our bodies are very significant, so we need to receive the best possible medical help and we need to pray and we should do those things simultaneously. We shouldn't wait for a better sort of healing. There isn't a better sort of healing. There's just the healing that Jesus offers. Sometimes it's via a doctor or psychiatrist and we use of medication and therapy and it's always supernatural because God is at the heart of everything good, including mental health recovery.
0: Great, thank you. There's one question which links really closely, which is about the uh, response when someone has come to you to share that they have a mental health struggle, is there a right time to recommend professional help or pastoral help, or is that a conclusion
2: you should encourage them to come to on their own? So that's a really helpful question. And I would say to you as, as a demonstration of this, if you're on this call tonight, and I'm talking about things that you can really relate to because you're in emotional pain or distress, I want you to finish this call tonight, and the first thing tomorrow morning, or even tonight, if you're really distressed, is to contact your NHS GP or to walk into an A and E clinic and say, "I need some help," because this isn't just a nice to have; this is a need to have. Um, and these topics are really significant. At the harder end, these are life-threatening conditions. Anorexia nervosa and bulimia are still some of the most fatal diseases. That are known to man statistically, and you know, unfortunately, even just in the last week, we through our associations, you know, have lost two young people to death by suicide. Uh, So this isn't a light topic on that level. This is a serious topic, and we always, as as carers for one another and as pastors for one another, should always ask the question: "Or are you doing okay? Tell me, you know, honestly, how are you feeling?" and and you know, use your, obviously, common sense in terms of how distressed a person is, but it's always a good idea to say, look, I think it would be really helpful for you to just have a consultation with your GP just to talk these issues through with them. GPs love these conversations. In fact, a third of all of their conversations are around mental health, um, just mental health. I'd say probably more than 50% relate to mental health in some way or other. And they normally undertake two different diagnostic tools with you. Uh, One is about a depression measurement scale. One is an anxiety measurement scale. And they don't foist tablets on you in the first sitting. They spend time listening to you and talking to you. So it's always a good idea. And if there's no illness, if there's no need for a diagnosis, you just see the doctor and check in with them, which is fine. (laughs) Okay. So I would say it's always a good idea. Have you seen a GP? Have you talked through what's going on for you? Let me also pray with you. It's just great advice.
0: One practical tip there, which I've heard you share before, is uh, the idea behind a double appointment.
2: Apparently that's something you can right. ask your GP yeah, so itself, right? Absolutely. A lot of people are nervous that they will just go to the GP, have 10 minutes and be quickly moved moved on. Um, and and I understand that that, is a, that puts people off. Um, I, I, I use that. A little bit with a little caution because some GPs are just super generous. And as soon as they feel that it's something untoward, they just give you more time anyway. But if you are nervous, you can always ask for a double appointment and say to the receptionist, This is a mental health conversation. I need a double appointment. And they'll book you in in advance for that. You can also take an advocate, which can be really helpful. So if you're not sure you can explain exactly what's going on yourself, you could take a trusted friend or a family member with you to help to talk to the doctor on your behalf. Because sometimes a friend or a family member have got quite a good objective view of how your emotional health is being worked out day to day.
0: Great. The next question that's just come in is, uh, if there's no alarm bells ringing and in ourselves we feel mentally healthy, are there ways that we can still steward our own mental health to continually become mentally healthier?
2: Absolutely. Yes, there is. I mean, that, that is a great question. That's always an encouraging question to ask. I mean, it's a bit like the same question of can I steward my body even when I'm on, you know, when I'm well? And I'd say we we can all do better. We've got to be careful not to become obsessional about our body, and we've got to be careful not to become obsessional about our mind. Because you know, this when I say obsessional, I mean I mean so concerned about our mind's health that actually we're overthinking our mental well-being. But I would say there's a number of things that we can do every day to help our mental health. The first one is gratitude training. Remember that passage from Philippians we mentioned a bit earlier on. You know, in everything by prayer and petition, uh, bring your request with thanksgiving, bring your requests to God. Um, I think that's so important. Philippians 4.6, that actually, do not be anxious about everything. This is not a command not to be anxious. It's an encouragement not to be anxious. But in every situation by prayer, that's transforming. Petition is about really identifying the problem. And then thanksgiving is gratitude training. then bring that to God. So I'd say start with gratitude. Gratitude training transforms our brain every day. I keep a little gratitude blog on my Instagram account, at Will Vanderhart, which is photos of the river and the bridge largely. Um, And I just give thanks to God every day for one thing. You can keep a journal. Journaling really helps. Just talk about your feelings every day. You can keep a gratitude journal and join the two things together. Then you can be thankful and also reflective. We need to reflect on our experience. We need to, if you like, become decongested emotionally. Relationships really help. Talking with others, sharing your heart, being honest and vulnerable. We know that people do better in community. We help to identify how we're doing together, collectively. You know, you can undertake different emotional exercise, Christian meditation, breathing. If you're going to use a model 7-Eleven, breathe in for seven, out for 11. It's a brilliant technique. Pray as you go. These are all things you can do, just the daily tasks to help improve your mental health. And lots of them can be done on the tube or, you know, on your bike, or whatever. They're all good. And there's loads of stuff about mental health and well-being of this practical style on our site, mindandselffoundation.org. Luke. Great. Thanks, Will. Uh, the next question comes in
0: uh, is around, uh, as Christians, we have the ability to marry together Uh, prayer and uh, seeking uh, kind of guidance and divine wisdom in our mental health struggles as well as professional and medication and appointments for someone let's say a friend who is a non-christian is it appropriate to uh, start conversations and introducing christ when they're struggling mentally or is that something we should place a
2: second and prioritize their mental health well it's really good Mm. it's a really important question you know i would say that we should be careful never to take advantage of someone in vulnerability, um, but also be ready to share the gospel at every opportunity. And that's attention. Um, when, when someone is, again, physically injured, it's a great time to pray, but it's probably not the right time to um, you know, to, begin a, a, you know, to begin an Alpha course with them, for example. It might, I mean, if they're very injured, then it might be the right time. But, um, but, but you know, we, we tend to offer care first. And I would say, um, be cautious about being perceived to be opportunistic in a way which would, could be deemed to be manipulative. You know, if you care for someone, you know, people want to listen to you because you care for them. When someone's struggling with mental health issues, demonstrating your care for them is demonstrating the love of Jesus to them. Articulating that with words might take some time after the event, but, but your demonstration of care is actually a witness in and of itself. We we need to be a little bit careful sometimes where serious and enduring conditions are concerned. So the the small group of disorders on the right-hand side of my DSM diagnostic manual are disorders which sometimes manifest around spiritual themes. So some hallucinations and some particularly what are called delusions are thoughts manifesting within the serious and enduring category, which can have religious themes. So Rob, who's one of our psychiatrists, runs a secure psychiatric unit. Many of the people might feel that they sometimes are God or are Jesus um, as much as they are, um, you, know, uh, you know, as well as other, as other characters. But it's a manifestation of disease. And when that's the case, we need to be quite careful about how we use spiritual language. And we need to be particularly careful that we don't spiritualize someone's mental health problem and collude with someone's delusion. And that is, a, that is a real challenge in the church because um, sometimes it can be natural for us to say things in a very spiritual way. And at times like that, I always say, take your medication, do your therapy and keep things simple. And right now, it's unlikely that God is going to talk to you in direct prophecy or through audible voices because God's not cruel. God is kind. And God wouldn't do, what, he wouldn't do something, he wouldn't communicate with you supernaturally in a way that could hinder your health and well-being. You know, he'll find another way of communicating with you. So in some settings, we need to bring down the supernatural dialogue just for the health and, and well-being of the person that we're supporting. Does that make sense? There's a, there's a kind, this is quite a complicated balance. But sometimes we need to be very sensitive to the fact that our spiritualization can collude with someone's actual with their mental distress another part of that from the neurotic perspective is when we start saying like we start saying things around the idea that you know being anxious is a sin worrying is a sin we need to repent of worry or we need to repent of being without joy if we're depressed and spiritualizing someone's symptoms because that again if it moves in towards more sort of abusive narratives rather than supportive ones Um, if someone's if someone's got a lack of serotonin in their brain and we start telling them that they're, they're being disobedient to God because they're not filled with joy right now, then actually we're not blessing them in Jesus' name. We're actually hurting them and wounding them. So our language really matters when mental health is concerned.
0: Yeah, Great. Um, The next question that's come in, actually two people have messaged this in, and I wanted to thank them for being so vulnerable. These questions really are being honest and vulnerable, which is beautiful. Uh, This question, two individuals have shared that they uh, would like to see a psychologist or a counsellor, but they've referred from doing so for over a year because they haven't been able to find one that's a Christian. Do you feel like in seeking professional help, uh, we should wait and find someone that does have a faith? Or uh, could
2: we uh, engage with someone who isn't a Christian? great. Thanks, Luke. This is a question I get asked all all the time. My my feed's still working okay, isn't it? So was a bit jumpy there. We're all good. Great. Um, So when you're going to see a doctor, when you phone up reception, do you say, I'd like to see a Christian doctor, please? Um, If you answer that question, yes, you're probably in a very, very small minority of Christians. Normally, if you want to see the doctor, you say, I'd like to see a good doctor, please. So when it comes to doctors... What you don't want to see is a bad doctor. You just want to see a good one. When it comes to psychologists and psychiatrists and counsellors, I'd say what you need to see is a good one, not a Christian one. Now, what's the difference between a good one and a bad one? The difference between a good one and a bad one is that good ones will always be supportive of your faith. Now, what's really interesting in psychology is that psychologists and psychiatrists are generally positive about a person having a faith. So generally, they generally believe that a person's faith is a supportive uh, tool, if you like, in their armory of, of emotional and mental well-being. As a result, they don't want to deconstruct your faith. They want to actually be supportive of your faith. And counsellors who are properly trained know how to work in a way that supports your faith whilst offering you challenging questions. I would say you want to look for an accreditation. I particularly recommend people look for BACP, the British Association for Counseling Psychologists, as a kind of kite mark that says, I've been professionally trained. There are other counsellors, the Association of Christian Counsellors provide them. Can I just say that there is a small caveat here about Christian counselling? And the caveat is not every answer to every question is Jesus, where psychology is concerned. When I was at at Sunday school, there was only one answer. You didn't have to listen to the question. If you said Jesus, you were were always right. And um, you will all know situations where that's the case, where if you give a biblical answer, you've given the right answer. But what that can mean is we don't really explore our actual experience because we're so concerned about offering the counsellor the right Christian answer. So, you know, imagine the counsellor says to you, you know, Will, are you, are you feeling joyful at the moment? Because the Lord has called us to joy. Now, in that moment, I'm being led to say, oh, oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, feel, I, feel joy, I feel joy right now. Oh, that's good, Will. Well done. I'm glad that you feel joy. Now, what I've done is I've responded to the counselor's leading for me to say I feel joyful. But what if I'm actually depressed? You know, that's, that's a danger. Now, let me be really clear. Most Christian counsellors who are properly trained wouldn't do that. But there is a risk associated with the Christian counsellor that you will try and please the counsellor with the right Christian answers rather than doing the actual work required in order that you might make a good recovery. So I would say find a good therapist. Don't always say, I need to find a Christian therapist and then you'll be doing really well. Is that okay, Luke?
0: That's great. Thank you. Um, The next question, there's some certain themes, so I'm putting some questions together, but the next theme is around people are wanting to know what are the signs uh, to see if you're emotionally healthy? So earlier you mentioned emotional health. What are the signs to be able to say, yes, I am actually emotionally healthy?
2: That's a a great question. Um, Now, if you think about signs of emotional health, um, you're really looking... You're looking at ideas around, for example, what, what makes a person tick? What makes a person connect? We're, we're built for connection. We're built for relationship. So one of the key signs of emotional health is our ability mm-hmm. to maintain a minimum quality of lasting per- interpersonal relationship. So your, your, your emotional health is partly measured by your ability to relate well to others. Um, so that's, that, that's a key marker. You know, if you're in good relationship with others, then that's normally a sign that you're doing well within yourself. Signs of symptoms of mental ill health are sometimes easier to identify than signs of, of mental health and well-being, but I'd say a person who's in good relationship with others. A person whose mood follows regular pattern. That means that they're expressing all of the emotions, but aren't getting entrenched in any particular mood. So, when, they're, when there's something that provokes sadness, they feel sad. When something provokes happiness, they feel happy. So emotionally responsive is another key aspect of that. It's not being happy all the time. Actually, that sometimes denotes mental ill health. But it's about demonstrating a full range of emotions. So good relationships, emotional dexterity, the ability to express a range of emotions, a reflective person. Um, So when we're always future-focused, we do the sort of three evils of psychology, repression, suppression, and denial. So we tend to, I really look to the future and always trying to be living for tomorrow, or we always look for the past and try and live in yesterday. But one of the key markers of emotional health and well-being is the ability to live now in the present, being emotionally present to yourself and others. I think we're also looking for some physical markers, so sleep regulation, healthy appetite, and not a dependence on drink or drugs. So there's some physical markers and there's some psychological markers too. They're they're a kind of loose look at what it looks like to be emotionally healthy. So relationships, emotional dexterity, uh, the ability to live in the present, avoidance of dependence on alcohol or drugs, sleep, appetite those things are really positive we can say okay i'm doing pretty well at the moment
0: the next kind of group of questions coming in are all around how we cultivate some of this with those around us obviously we're starting the dialogue we're continuing the dialogue here this evening but in terms of if we're in a community group if we have a group of friends group of family members who have never spoken about mental health at all what are some of the things we can do to kind of stir some of this stuff in up in them and give them
2: the confidence to then start talking about their experiences But in my experience, it's all about the questions that we ask. And I love the how are you feeling question. We often say to people, how are you doing? But we're not human doings, we're human beings. And feelings denote our experiences. What's interesting to me, having worked in this field for quite a while, is how Christians particularly work hard to avoid large segments of their emotional experience. Because effectively, we've qualified some emotions as being good and some emotions as being evil. And so the, the presumption about Jesus is that he walked sort of three quarters of an inch above the floor. He kind of glided along, always looking serene. And, you know, whatever was thrown at him, Jesus had of he was sort of one speed emotionally. When actually Jesus is the most emotionally complete person that ever walked the earth. That means that he expresses every emotion, both what we call the yellow emotions, the kind of up emotions, like ha- happiness and joy and serenity and peace but also the purple emotions, the difficult emotions, like anger and frustration and grief uh, and emotional distress. If you read the Bible for all it's worth, what you see is that Jesus is fully emotionally alive. Also, it says in the scriptures themselves, he was tempted in every way yet was without sin. So what we know is that Jesus reflected fully on everything he experienced every temptation, and yet he did not submit himself to temptation. And what that shows you is you can experience a full range of emotions and yet not sin. And that, that's really key to me. Now, Jesus was so angry that he bound together a cord and, and he whipped the temple traders out of the temple courts. That's pretty angry. Jesus was so distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweated drops of blood, which we know is a physiological symptom of psychological distress. So it's, it's quite extreme. But if Christians believed that they could express emotions in the same way that Jesus expressed emotions, we'd all do a lot better. One of the key litmus tests of our emotional health and well-being is knowing how we feel and actually being able to articulate how we feel. That's why living in community is so key. Because actually when we live together in community and we're honest and vulnerable with one another, we begin to get decongested and emotionally. Many Christians are rigid emotionally. They take their masks off go to church, put on their perma smile, say, yes, vicar, I'm fine, vicar, go home and then put their depression, you know, they they take their mask off and their depression is real. What we have to do is be able to be much, much more authentic about our feelings. I describe emotions as taking the temperature of our experiences. So if you put a thermostat in your bath, and it said 90 degrees, you can't get angry at the thermostat. It's just 90 degrees. If the bathwater's cold and it's 30 degrees, you can't get angry at the thermostat for saying it's 30 degrees. Your emotions take the temperature of your experiences and being honest about them helps you to process those difficult experiences. University of Glasgow says we've got four core emotions. They're like the four aspects of our, um, of our orchestra. They're like the woodwind, the brass, the percussion and the strings. Now, out of the four core instruments, we have an extrapolation of every other emotion. So you've got happy, sad, fear, disgust, anger. They're, that's the heartbeat of our emotions, these big emotions, and they extrapolate out to the smaller ones, the finer woodwind, the piccolo, the double bass, the timpani, drums. You know, they're all in there. Every emotion makes a sound. The question I have for you is, is your emotion making a sound, and is anyone listening? When we repress, suppress, or deny our emotion, it gets congested and often gets internalized. The Japanese say that depression is anger turned inwards, which is quite a healthy understanding of depression. It's like our emotion has got sublimated, it's got turned against ourselves. We describe that as intro punitive hostility. We become angry with ourselves because we're not expressing our emotion externally, we're not taking it away, we're burying it down inside. So how can we do better together? We can be more honest, we can be more vulnerable, We can be more real. Being a Christian is not being about, it's not about being a bleeding heart in the public square vulnerability. It's about being authentic about your emotional experience. So when Pastor Luke or Pastor Bijan says to you, uh, you know, how are you doing this week? Don't say I'm okay. I think okay should be banned, you know, or uh, I'm not doing that badly. Oh, not that bad. What's that mean? Not that bad. Right on the scale of badness, how bad is it? It's, These are nothingness phrases that don't enable us emotionally. What we should be saying is, actually, Pastor Bijan, I've had a really bad week and I felt really sad a few times this week, you know, just to let you know, and then go and take your seat. You don't need to go into a counselling session. You do need to describe your real emotion. So I'd say let's get much, much more honest about how we're actually doing.
0: This is something I'm going to jump in and say something because something you once told or I, I heard in a talk that you shared that blew my mind and has stayed on the other since is that fear of being vulnerable um, to get sympathy. I think sometimes when I am vulnerable, I'm nervous. It comes across as I'm just seeking sympathy. I'm being dramatic. But then the distinction you made is seeking and demonstrating vulnerability to then demonstrate the strength that Jesus, off- that Jesus has offered us. So maybe a question there is how can we practically model healthy vulnerability rather than simply being nervous at what others might perceive or say?
2: I mean, it's great. It's a, it's a really helpful point, Lee, because the reality is that we, we overthink our emotional expression. So people who really want um, sympathy and people who want to be noticed over-emote, so what they do is they manipulate their own emotions for, for reaction. Now, what they're not doing is living in their real emotion. Because if they were living in their real emotion, they would probably be expressing a deep grief which cannot be articulated through being needy in that way or like grasping emotionally. And then we've got the majority of people who are so, cu- so keen to avoid looking like they're grasping emotionally, they don't express anything emotionally. And, and that's actually a massive problem. What's interesting is if we were to find the balance between these two positions, everyone would do well. Because what would happen is that being vulnerable honestly would mean that we knew what honest vulnerability looked like. Therefore, when people were manipulating others with their emotions, that would also be very very apparent. So what we've got at the moment are these two polarities of of people who might be responsible for for manipulating others emotionally and people who are not expressing any emotion at all. And what that does is that makes this group look more normal than it really is. What we need to do is say, actually, what's it look like in the middle? And, And I think the key thing here is getting away from the idea that when we express emotion, anything has to happen. So you know, imagine, let's go back to physical illness again. Imagine someone came to you and said, um, you know, as they do sometimes to me, Will, I've got cancer. I go, oh, I'm, oh my goodness, are you serious? They're like, yeah, I just got diagnosed this week. I am so sorry to hear that. Oh my goodness, I can't imagine how you're feeling right now. Now, as I respond to this person, they're expressing their emotion, and I'm responding appropriately by expressing empathy to their position. Now, I don't do two things. I don't go, Oh my goodness, this person is trying to manipulate me. I've got to shut them down straight away because this is really awkward. Or I go, Oh, well, I read on the internet about this amazing cure for cancer. Let me tell you all about it. So I don't do one, I don't do either of those two things. But when mental health is concerned, people can either feel like, oh, this is all a bit much and a bit heavy and shut down, or they can become a, you know, a back pocket psychiatrist and start saying, oh, have you tried, you know, green tea? I've heard that's a really good fix. Uh, So what we need to do is treat mental health and emotional health a bit more like physical health and well being, and be less uncomfortable when people express and try less hard to try and fix a problem. In my marriage, Sometimes my wife will express very emotionally, as I hope is true for everyone's marriage. As a man, I'm not over-stereotyping here, I have a tendency to try and find a resolution to the problem. What she really wants me to do is not say, oh, yes, well, have you thought about doing this? And, oh, well, I read on the internet something about how you should do this. What she wants me to do is listen and empathise and keep my mouth shut. And what we need to do better, more for each other is listen, empathize, and largely keep our mouth shut and make emotional connection much more natural. Be like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear you've had a tough time. Thank you for listening. You know, we've forgotten how precious listening is. And at church, we've got the opportunity to listen and then to say, you know what, I'm going to pray for you this week. I hope you have a better week. Or, you know, it's been really great chatting to you. I think maybe you would benefit from chatting to your GP or, hey, you know, it's really helpful that you've shared this. Maybe check in with me again in a couple of weeks and let me know how you're doing. That, that's what I recommend. Let's make it normal, let's make it natural. And then the weird stuff will begin to fall off the radar. Linking to your distinction there around
0: um, maybe some natural responses for men and women, someone's messaged in saying that they've heard that uh, female suicide rates are dramatically decreasing, male suicide rates are dramatically increasing. How can we uh, navigate this conversation so that everyone, no matter your gender in the church, has conversations around mental health? Are there different things we need to do for men and different
2: things for women? Absolutely. Well, uh, this is a really challenging question. Um, suicide rates for women are half what the suicide rates are for men. And since 2011, women's suicide rates have been dropping significantly, whereas male suicide rates have been rising to around 4,600 a year in the UK, which is, which is pretty terrifying. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that the COVID pandemic will have a significant impact on suicide rates and it will, it will be ways to be seen whether that will be across the genders or whether, again, male suicide will be more prevalent It's important to say about suicide that talking about suicide does not increase the potential or the possibility of someone taking their own life by suicide. And we should talk about suicide more than we do. What we know about suicide is we talk about suicide, suicide rates decrease, or people are less likely to to, uh, take act act on their suicidal ideation. When we don't talk about suicide, there is a greater risk. And so I'd encourage anyone on this call who has what we call suicidal ideation, that is thoughts of suicide, Um, particularly if you've ever thought of of a plan relating to that, but but really anyone who has frequent thoughts of suicide to talk to someone professionally, because these things are common within the church as as much as they're in society at large. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, It's common for people to, I think 30% of people, have occasional thoughts around suicide and their immortality. I certainly do when I'm on the tube. I always think about that yellow line when it says, do not cross the yellow line. I always imagine myself crossing the yellow line. And sometimes I back up against the back wall of the tube just to kind of reassure myself that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ledge forward. I'm sharing that because I have no suicidal intentions, but I sometimes, when people say things like, don't go near the edge, I have this weird feeling like I'm gonna go near the edge. I'm sharing that with you as a pastor because I know that some of you on this call might relate to that idea. Just so you know that these thoughts are common and they're not abhorrent to God. You know, in, in, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah says, you know, he's suicidal. He says, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He lies down he wants to die. God doesn't say, oh, my goodness, Elijah, how disrespectful. I can't believe you're doing this. You know, God just treats him with such compassion. He causes him to fall into a deep sleep. Then he wakes him and he feeds him. Then he causes him to fall into another deep sleep and then he helps him on his way. You know, life is punctuated by this reality and often by our own mortality. We need, again, to talk about it a bit more honestly. Uh, There isn't a a mental health first aid model called ALGIE, which I recommend to you. You know, it's just an acrostic. If you're not sure, then look it up tonight. But it gives you just a framework to talk a bit about these kind of issues. We need to talk about suicide in church. um, Because the more of a shame story uh, suicide is, the more... Uh, alone and isolated people are Therefore, the more risky life becomes for them. And I would say if we talked about it more with less shame and less stigma, it would happen less. What is the difference between male and female suicide? It can only be that men are insulated and struggle to talk about their emotions and that women are becoming increasingly strong at conversing emotionally. And that's partly the stereotype of social media and of the media at large. It's partly because men are becoming less and less connected to one another through socialization and sports and traditional settings where men used to dialogue through their emotions disappearing. You know, no one thinks that a priest should be like, recommending the local pub. But actually, 30 years ago, men used to leave the office or their workplace and go and sit in the pub and chat about life with their friends over a pint. I, I, I'm, I'm very strongly, I believe in a very strong equality, equality in society. But I can see that the loss of that space for men has had a detrimental effect on male mental health. Um, And that's a concern. You know, I think we need to do more to support men to talk, um, but not at the detriment of women talking. I just think men need to talk more and we need to facilitate settings where men can talk freely about their emotions.
0: It's good. good. Uh, One other theme that's coming up is around another fear of why people aren't talking about this and haven't in the past. And it's the idea of an overshare, the fear of being a burden to someone, the fear of someone might have their own personal struggles. Mm -hmm. Why should I become a burden to them on top of that? How can we get rid of that self mentality of being
2: fearful of oversharing, burdening someone else? Absolutely. It's a really helpful point. I mean, but there's two positions. Remember, it's not just the overshare. The overshare and the undershare are the two bookends of this story. And actually, what's going on here is we always focus on the overshare. I don't want to be an oversharer. But actually, what we don't think is, I don't want to be an undersharer. And undersharers are doing worse than oversharers. And think about it you know, in your friendship group. Like think about your friends generally. Do you, do you like spending more time with the person who holds everything back would you like spending more time with a person who tends to like go a little bit hard, you know, a bit fast sometimes? I would say in people's friendship groups, they typically prefer to be with the open-handed person who shares more of their life story and sometimes goes a little bit overboard, than with someone who effectively is just shut down. Now, we often think that the shutdown position is the virtuous position, but I would say that the oversharer is in more virtue than the undersharer, and. You know, ask again, what does Jesus do? Imagine, think about the woman with bleeding. It would have been discreet for Jesus to allow her to touch the hem of his cloak and then just disappear off in silence. So that would have been an undersharer position. What Jesus does is he says in front of the whole crowd, who touched me? The disciples are like, what do you mean? Everyone's touching you, Jesus. He's like, no, someone touched me. The power went out of me. Then he gets this woman trembling to come in front of him in front of the massive crowd and say, hey, This lady's got menstrual bleeding, everyone. Look, and I've just healed her. I mean, it's a remarkable thing. It's a massive overshare, but it's so important because this woman is restored in community. Her physical health is healed, her social health is healed, and she has access to the temple. So her spiritual health is healed. Oversharing has its place in scripture. We shouldn't be afraid of it. And if we try to overshare a bit, we probably wouldn't get to the extreme which we're worried about. We'd probably find a bit of a central point at which, actually, this is okay. If everyone takes the undershare position, we're never going to get to a healthy conversation. So I'd say if you're worried about it, take courage. Try and overshare. You probably won't get there. Believe me, I've heard some oversharing in my time. You probably won't come even close. So if you try, you might actually change the culture for a more honest conversation. This is really good. I'm uh,
0: so conscious of time. We could be here for another few hours. But one question I really do want to ask, I think it might be a quite way to kind of uh, bring us towards the close of our time together, is, Will, I would love to hear your dream. In five years, looking at the church, specifically in London, what is your
2: vision for how the church engages in mental health? Well, first thing I want to say is I'd love to see the church filled with ministers of the gospel who have a diagnosed mental health problem. Because I think that would demonstrate the fact that actually that this isn't an impediment to your ministry, that this isn't actually a, a sort of an exclusive club, um, which you, you're not part of. So inclusion is really important to me. I want to see a diverse church racially, socially and health wise. I want to see people with disabilities and serious and, and mental health problems involved in the ministry of the church. That would be a really amazing thing. I'd love the general health and well-being of the church in terms of their own emotional discourse to improve to a level where people in the world are literally going, oh, my goodness, I really want to go to church because they have such honest conversations. And like everyone in there, they're all a bit like, you know, funny, but they're all honest. And actually, they seem to welcome everyone, even people like me. So I'd love that sort of welcome. I'd love to be on the door of my church with my boss, Tim, and and welcome people in and actually have them say some honest things as they came in and as they went out every time. That would be amazing. Uh, And I'd love there to be a, a, a sense, a state of health, which meant that issues of abuse and manipulation and control were yesterday's news because everyone in leadership was so healthy that they didn't fall foul of so many of the basics of what it looks like to be an emotionally healthy leader. I think you know, I, I'm, I'm wounded every time I read another story of some of the stuff that goes on behind the closed doors of leadership. I want to be like, Oh my goodness, let's blow these doors open and let's lead like Jesus calls us to lead with honesty and vulnerability and in a wounded but godly way where actually the kingdom is advancing and we can see the glory of God revealed in leadership. I'm, I'm fed up of. of of the sort of you know positional presentational leadership which says actually we don't hurt we don't struggle we don't we don't walk with the wounded and what I long to see is a sort of like actually let's God let let's let God demonstrate what the kingdom of God really looks like in our lives and so that would be like the authentic vulnerable like extreme position that I would like to see and if we got halfway there I'd still be pretty made up Luke so you know my vision is to see the kingdom of God advancing you know, across society. What do we need? We don't need more money. We need more of the spirit of God. We don't need more control. We need more of the spirit of God. We don't need more buildings. We need more of the spirit of God. We we don't need more amazing worship songs. We just need to be more real and actually testify to the way in which God is working in our lives. And I I want, you know, this world is so lonely. 55% of pastors were polled. They said they were lonely most of, of the time. You know, 2.8 million people polled in the UK last year and said they were lonely nearly all of the time. We've got to do more for, like, loneliness by actually having honest conversations and building community and letting Jesus flow, you know, you know, between us in the words that we share, the love that we give, the spirit that moves amongst us, and in the word of God which we have access to, which, I might add, never, ever appears to be contradicted by contemporary psychology. So I've been studying the Bible for you know, 20 years, and I've not found anything that contemporary psychology would say would be bad news for your mind. You know, God is the great psychologist. He's the great psychiatrist. Everything within scripture is good for your mind. And uh, we just need to consume more of it and share more of it with one another.
1: Well, that's a really helpful vision. And I think we'll all be praying into that future for our church and for the church throughout our country. Uh, One more question before we wrap up, and that is, can you tell us about resources that anyone on the call might say, I want to take the next step. Where should I go? What should I read? What site should I tap into? Maybe mind and soul foundation, but just give us one or two next steps that some of us might be able to take as we, you know, not only as a church, but even individually engage with some of the material you presented tonight.
2: Thanks so much, Pastor Bijan. Yeah. So, I mean, think about the, the, in three, three sections. So there's the, there's NHS provision. Remember, if you, if you've got needs, or you've got concerns, or you've got concerns about a friend, contact your NHS provider, your GP or your local a walk centre. They're always ready to talk. So that's a key one. Then you've got non-Christian sort of larger state providers, so third sector providers. So you've got MIND, which is a fantastic resource, which is a really huge enterprise. Feel busting full of great um, material around mental and emotional health. You've got Rethink Mental Health. And there's quite a lot of really great ones. There's Place to Be. There's a whole swathe of great resources in, in the secular sphere. And then you've got the Christian sphere. And as I said, we've got, obviously, Mindstar Foundation. We've been going for, like, 16 years. We've got a board of two psychiatrists and psychologists and myself. We all work together. We're all committed Christians. And we are, we're a, a kind of... We're, I guess we're an informational resource, and we do a lot of signposting. So hit our stuff up. There's all free. There are about... I don't know, fifteen books or so associated with the site as well. But then you've got you've got other great resources. You've got Kintsugi Hope that do hope groups, amazing resource, um, brilliant resource. There's Think Twice, which is a suicide prevention charity, another brilliant resource. There's Renew Mental Health, another great resource. There's Sanctuary. They've got a really good course running, the Sanctuary course. Then you've got the character course with Roger Brevinson. You've got the wellbeing course, which has just come out with uh, Roy Crown, which is fantastic. You've got Mercy Ministries, which is a brilliant resource and their Keys to Freedom course is absolutely fantastic. Uh, there's the Steps course out of Christchurch, Kensington. There are some really great Christian resources there around mental, emotional health. There's some great charities. Uh, they're doing some awesome work. And you know, the great thing is about the idea of integrating the Bible Great psychology and psychiatry, you know, a sensible approach. And then you can nuance things as you will, according to your tradition, you know, and let God speak to you about these things, but get the baseline stuff, go for, go for mainstream and then, you know, expand from there. I would say, you know, look at the general wisdom and then expand, you know, into the tendrils of that wisdom, but go for the tree trunk before you go for the tendrils. That's what I'd say.
1: Okay. Thank you, Will. Friends, can you join me in giving a virtual round of applause for Will and for his time tonight? Can't hear it, Will, but they're clapping.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much, everyone.
1: God, thank you for the conversation that we've been able to have. Thank you so much for sending Will to lead us and to give us not only the passion of his own story, but years of reflection on scripture and in the field of mental health. Thank you for blessing us with him tonight. And I do now pray for us as a church that you would help us collectively and individually to rejoice in the fact that you care about our mental health. And even as we rejoice to then be honest and to be vulnerable and to be real about where we are and about what we need and to then be courageous as we take steps to address and to pursue mental health. Help us as a church to be a safe place to do that by the power of your spirit and through your grace. So we again thank you for this time and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Will, thank you so much once again for joining us this evening and for everyone that submitted questions for our time of Q&A, we really do thank you for making this such a fruitful time together. So thank you for joining us and we look forward to coming together soon for the next Reality Church London conversation. Goodbye for now.